Thin Air is an independently created podcast and is supported in part by our donors at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. On our Patreon, donors get rewards for supporting our work, like exclusive access to mini-episodes, ad-free regular episodes, and now stickers. For $1 a month, you get access to Patreon-only content and a sticker sent your way. So head on over to patreon.com slash thinairpodcast to check us out. We have a new sponsor this week. Thanks to HelloFresh.com for supporting Thin Air. Receive $30 off your first week of deliveries when you go to HelloFresh.com and use the offer code THINAIR30. October 1986. It's a warm Halloween night in San Francisco, California, and it's a Friday. The city is preparing for a Halloween weekend with parties and revelers in costumes filling the city streets. We don't know exactly what 23-year-old Stephen Allen Davis's plans were for that weekend. He was known for his striking good looks, and with a wide network of friends, it doesn't seem like he would be sitting at home alone on such a social holiday. But all that's left now in the nearly 31 years since that Halloween weekend when Stephen disappeared are second-hand versions of places he might have mentioned going or things he may have been doing. This is where the challenge of today's episode begins. Time has distorted the facts in his case. Phone numbers and names have changed. And with little media coverage or serious investigation at the time, the story of Stephen's disappearance now lives in the memories of his family. For them, every Halloween brings back memories of the son and brother who is no longer there. I'm Norman Davis, and the missing person is my son, Stephen Davis. I'm Susie Davis, and I'm Steve's older sister. I'm four years older. My name is Rosetta Davis. Steve was my second child, my oldest boy. And... um, I miss him. So what do we know for sure? Well, all of his family lived nearby, within the San Francisco Bay Area. Stephen, who went by Steve, lived in the Richmond district of San Francisco and worked in the mailroom of the Chevron Corporation on Market Street. We also know that on Halloween night, Steve clocked out of work after having a particularly good day. That Friday, when he left work, they asked him, well, how was your day or something? And he said, this is the happiest day I've ever been at work. I think he was very happy that day anyway. Flash forward to Monday morning, November 3rd. At the time, Rosetta lived in the nearby city of Corda Madera, about 45 minutes north of San Francisco, across the Golden Gate Bridge. That morning, Rosetta gets a phone call from Steve's boss at Chevron, asking if she knows where he is. And then Monday morning, his work called and asked if I knew where Steve was because he hardly ever missed work, or if he was late, he would call, or if he was sick, he would call. 
They said he hasn't called. We called his house. Nobody answered. I said, I didn't hear from him. I don't know where he is or what happened. And uh, so we hung up, and I was, like, getting a little worried because nobody heard from him. So um, I kept calling his number. Nobody answered. Nobody answered. So that went on like all day, and then the next day, he still didn't answer, didn't show up at work or get in touch with anyone. Days went on, and Steve's work kept calling Rosetta, who had no answer for them, and still has no answers today. Steve has never been seen or heard from since leaving work that Halloween night, and now All the family can do is look for clues in what they knew about him and try to figure out, did he abandon his life that day, never looking back and leaving them all behind? Or did something more sinister happen? I'm Daniel, and this is episode 32 of Thin Air Podcast, The Mysterious Disappearance of Steve Davis. Steve was born in California in 1963. Norman, Steve's dad, was a well-known FM radio host and producer in the Bay Area, hosting shows that featured music, interviews, and storytelling. He continues to do so today in Boise. I still do a radio show, which is on Radio Boise on Monday nights. I do a blues show called The Juke Joint. Do you come in and do it at Radio Boise here? Yeah. Oh, we're like, we're literally in the same building as Radio Boise, the floor right above them. I'll be darned. <laughs> our podcast was featured in our local paper, the Idaho Statesman, and he reached out to us. There really hasn't been a lot done to look for him. And then when I saw the article about you guys doing old cases, I thought, well, hey, <laughs> I never gave up hoping to find something, so that's why I contacted you. Norman and Rosetta had four children together, Susie being the oldest, then Steve, and then two more brothers after that. Susie spoke about what Steve was like growing up. Super creative. He was an Aries, and he was kind of a quintessential Aries, if you believe in astrology. Steve was the oldest boy, and he was absolutely the commander of this whole army of little boy cousins, always organizing them into what games to play, being very creatively um, engaged. He was always writing stories, drawing pictures, making lists. He was obsessed with lists lists of his favorite monster movies, lists of, you know, all the characters in all the Ray Harryhausen films. Um, (laughs) And he also was quite independent and, and had a bit of a temper. Susie, Norman, and Rosetta all talked about Steve's creativity and how he loved music, art, and especially film. After graduating from Redwood High School, Steve went to San Francisco State to study film. What he really wanted to do was to make movies. And he went to San Francisco State and took um, movie making or video making. And and, um, he ended up 
playing a part in one movie. And somehow he got involved with a modeling agency. He wanted to do... He, he was very good looking, so he would just he'd be walking down the street and somebody stopped him and said, Wow, you ought to be a model. And he kept hearing that, so I think he decided, well, maybe I could. He was a real interesting guy. He was quite naive, uh, and he... He was a big Beatles fan. He liked to make stop-action animated movies. He was a pretty fun guy. But he was a real devoted creative, and he was he was spending a lot. He spent a lot of time by himself writing songs on the guitar. He wrote a ton of songs that we we still have. We have all the demos of. Um, he was very talented, but hadn't really figured out, you know, any kind of way to like share that talent with the world. So he was kind of a rock star in his bedroom. Susie is an accomplished musician in her own right. She plays keyboards, the accordion. She sings and writes her own music. She toured with and has opened for some of the most famous musicians in the world, like Mick Jagger, Billy Idol, and Pat Benatar. Steve had even gone on tour with her as a roadie, but her success caused mixed feelings for Steve. He had a super independent spirit, and I'm the older sister, and and I had a lot of success in the music business. I was out on the road. When when he disappeared, I just finished touring with Van Morrison that year. Oh, wow. And then as a backup musician, and then the following year when I was out on tour with Billy Idol, I was like putting up you know, like missing posters at truck stops all around the country. <laughs> How fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. And, um, but anyway, he, you know, he really wanted to do this music thing and, you know, and I had had all this success and I think it was a little bit hard just as it is. It's always hard for the younger sibling, <laughs> right? He had a very independent streak and he would really hate it if I would try and like, you know, like give him advice or anything like that. So like one of his songs is called, I don't need nobody to tell me how to be famous. <laughs> it's like the opening line. last clip you heard is actually Steve singing that song, which Susie recorded and produced for him. After going to San Francisco State for a few semesters, he dropped out and held a series of odd jobs. It's clear that at this time, Steve was figuring out where he wanted his life to go and what he wanted to do. Rosetta thought that Steve liked his job at Chevron, but Susie disagreed. He was a little bit tormented. <laughs> like, like he had he had a temper, you know, and he could get very irritated. He worked in the mail section at Chevron. I remember him telling us there was a girl who whistled and it just drove him like absolutely crazy. It made his blood boil. So I wouldn't say he was that happy, you know at his work. He was just working and you know being a young man trying to support himself. All of this leads to the night Steve was last heard from, October 31st, 1986. 
Before leaving work, he remarked that he had had the best day, and then, presumably, he headed home to his apartment. The Chevron Company was on Market Street, and his apartment was in the Richmond District, about four miles away. Steve would have had to either walk home or take the bus, as he didn't own a car. It is believed he made it back to his apartment that night. The early Saturday edition of the San Francisco Chronicle was found in his apartment by his mother Rosetta in the days after his disappearance. I went over and I asked the landlady to let me in and yeah, everything was, all his stuff was there and... Was his guitar in his apartment? Yeah, it was. Was there anything missing? Like, did he have a wallet or anything else like that? His wallet was missing and um, a jacket that he wore a lot. And that's about all. There are conflicting reports about Steve's plans for the weekend. Different friends told different stories about what they heard he was going to do. The first was that he planned on attending a Halloween party. The family had no idea whose party this could have been and weren't sure where the party was supposed to take place. I had seen him, I guess, about a week or two before he disappeared. And um, he was um, planning to attend a party and had uh, told uh, friends and uh, possibly his mom that he was uh, he was going to go to this party. I think it was also in Marin County. That's pretty much the last anybody heard of him. And so he didn't show up at the party, or at least we didn't know of, uh, that he appeared any place. The family has, compiled by Norman, a complete summary of everything they know about Steve's disappearance. Somehow, this story of the unknown Halloween party doesn't make it into the notes and presents evidence for different plans that Steve had that weekend. It reads, quote, On Wednesday of that week, he told a friend named Frank that he had no plans for Halloween and planned to spend the weekend at his mother's house in Marin County. He also told another friend named George that he was going to stop by his friend Steve's house in Larkspur to pick up a tape he had recorded there earlier, end quote, with no mention of the party. I've heard two conflicting things because in the file that your dad sent me, it said that he had no plans for Halloween. But then your dad mm -hmm. said that he did have plans to go to a Halloween party. And your dad didn't know much mm -hmm. more than there was some Halloween party he was supposed to go to. He didn't know where it was. He didn't know who right. the friends were or, or anything. Mm -hmm. What do you know about his plans for Halloween that year? I don't know anything. Okay. I was not, not in touch with him that weekend. Rosetta confirmed that she had heard from Frank, her roommate, that Steve did plan on coming over to her house that weekend. Frank said that he had talked to Steve on the phone. He had uh, talked to my roommate. My roommate had asked him what he was doing for Halloween, and he said, well, I don't, I don't know, but I think I'll come out to Corte Madera and come, come over to my house. And, 
and then that weekend I worked all weekend. He didn't show up, and I didn't think too much about it. He was, you know, 23 years old. He could change his mind and do what he wanted. None of this could be confirmed with Frank, because in talking to Susie, we found out that he has since died of natural causes. And what about this potential trip to Larkspur, a city right next to Corda Madera where Rosetta lived? The person who provided this detail, George, was a neighbor of Steve's in the Richmond district and a lifelong friend. It would make sense that if Steve meant to visit his mom, perhaps he would just pick up the tape too. Norman also added another detail about the Halloween party. It was potentially in Larkspur. Well, I don't think that we ever knew where the party was or who was involved in the party. We had just heard that he was going to a party, a Halloween party in Larkspur, I think, which is a Marin County town. That's about all we knew. And then apparently he didn't show up for the party. So it seems that his weekend plans may have included all of these things. A Halloween party that night in Larkspur, staying with his mother in nearby Corda Madera, and maybe even getting a tape from someone who lived in Larkspur. Even though some of these details are muddled, they do seem to all revolve around one particular location. Of course, none of these things ever happened, at least that we know about. But if he made it to this party, that means he went missing Halloween night rather than later that weekend. Or maybe there was no party. Or maybe it was a party he didn't actually plan on going to. So all we know is that he went missing between Friday night and Monday morning when he doesn't show up for work. After two days of no show of work at Chevron, Rosetta decided to call the police and ask for help. I think a call the missing persons department is in the San Francisco police department and told them that I was really worried about my son. And they said, well, they couldn't do anything for two weeks or 10 days or something because he was an adult. He was 23 years old. So if I hadn't heard from, if, from him in two weeks, they would start investigating. From the start, it seems that the leading theory was that Steve left on his own. A major reason for this was something that Steve had said around a year before he went missing. And then I remembered something Steve had said to me. He called me on the phone, like about maybe, I don't know, maybe a year before, before this happened, and he said, Mama, I, I, I'm, I just want to ask you something. What would you do if I suddenly disappeared? And, and I talked to him, and I said, of course, I don't want you to do that. And I said, I told him how I felt when I was about his age. I kind of had that same feeling. I would just like to disappear and get away from everything and start all over. And I said, just talk. Hang on there, everything will get better. And this wasn't the only time Steve mentioned what it would be like if he vanished. He had asked another friend if, if they had any idea how to get a, a, 
like a new social security number. And um, my cousin, he had also had a similar conversation about just sort of putting forth the idea that he was kind of thinking of somehow, you know, disappearing for a while, just like cutting himself off from his family and his friends and taking off. And there was enough of these kind of stories that we kind of really, uh, we really clung on to that as a family. Because the family believed that Steve had just taken off on his own, they didn't put too much pressure on the police or hire someone to look for him. In hindsight, they feel as though they should have pursued an investigation more intensely. And in retrospect, that's the thing that I really think was a mistake because we didn't hire a private investigator. The police were involved and the police interviewed all of his friends and... um, you know, it seemed, and we were in uh, in touch with them pretty um, consistently. So they were doing some investigation, but in retrospect, I wish we'd hired a private investigator. But we just had this story in our heads that he had decided for some reason to take off on like a lark. Like he was just going to disappear himself and see who he was in the world without being actively connected to his family of origin. We really believe that story. Over time, Norman has come to believe that Steve didn't mean anything by the comments he made about disappearing. I think he said once that if he if he went missing, not to worry. I really don't think that is what happened because we had a good relationship with Steve. He... He was not uh, unhappy or pissed off at anybody in the family. And he was in contact with us pretty regularly, you know, at least uh, every month or maybe every couple of weeks. And he, I think I saw him uh, about two weeks before he disappeared and, and his mom saw him and so I, I really discount that. Uh, He may have just been fantasizing that when he said that. I think the police, you know, did a a minimal investigation, but they really didn't think uh, it was anything to be concerned about. After a time, uh, perhaps they did a little more investigating, but there was really nothing to go on. He had just, you know, dropped off the map. The family tried to get help finding and contacting Steve. They printed off flyers and took ads out in local papers. Susie was on tour when he went missing, so she posted his flyers all over the country. And then someone called, saying they had seen Steve. For a long time, every time the phone would ring and and nobody would be on the other end, I would think, oh, maybe it was Steve, you know. We had put posters up and there was a, a, a picture of him in the uh, Marin County uh, Pacific Sun, it was called. It was a periodical that came out every month, I think. And... Uh, you know, if anybody had seen that picture, they could call this number. And, and one lady did call, and she said, 
I, I picked up two hitchhikers, and the and one of them I, she thought looked exactly like that picture of Steve in the newspaper. So and they were headed to Oregon. They were hitchhiking to Oregon. So um, I called the police and I told them that. And but you know. I, I felt like I got to get in my car and go and see if I can find him. But you know. ultimately, the sighting went nowhere. And so Rosetta just waited, knowing that if he was out there, he would call. And that call never came. Well, yeah, I thought he would show up because that was the end of October, so I thought, well, he'll be here for Thanksgiving, and then he'll be here for Christmas, and, you know, we got presents for him, and <laughs> so, and then, well, March is his birthday, well, he, or my, and my birthday's in March, and his dad's birthday was in February, so he never called, he never showed up, so. We clung to this hope that he was coming back. And I remember that Christmas, I like, we got him Christmas presents because we sort of had some like story in our head that he was going to just show up for Christmas. Like, (laughs) how could he, if he was out gallivanting around, how could he not call his mom for Christmas? As time passed with no word from Steve and with little input from investigators, everyone began to question the theory of Steve leaving on his own. I really don't believe he would disappear forever from our lives. There was no reason. You know, we, we looked out for each other. We took care of each other. We helped each other. You know, it's not like it was a toxic family environment that he needed to escape from. Uh, I just don't believe he would have been he would stay away for his entire life. Steve also left behind many things that the family found suspicious for someone who allegedly left of their own accord. The first was a bank account with around $500 in it, money he would have presumably needed had he left voluntarily. In 1986, that amount would be worth over $1,000 in today's money. A lot of money for a single man from a modest family living on his own in a large metropolitan city. He also left behind his guitar, which might be significant and might not be. If you were really leaving to start a new life, wouldn't you leave everything behind, especially what people in your life would consider the most important? But isn't it also particularly cruel to make those you love really question whether or not you went missing? Was Steve capable of doing something that hurtful? I'm just kind of telling my side of the story. Everybody has their own ideas of what might have happened. And at different times in my life, I guess I've, you know, thought all kinds of different things that could have happened. It's not something that 
excuse me, <laughs> it's not something that just leaves you, you know. It's just always there, and you're always kind of... When we get back from this short break, we'll consider all of the clues from Steve's life that indicate he didn't leave on his own, and that, perhaps, something more sinister may have occurred. Thin Air Podcast has teamed up with HelloFresh, and they are offering everyone in our audience $30 off your first week of deliveries when you go to HelloFresh.com and use the offer code THINAIR30. That's THINAIR30. Everything from HelloFresh comes pre-measured in labeled meal kits, so you know exactly which ingredients go with which recipe. HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef-curated recipes, and the plans to choose from consist of classic, veggie, and family. I've really enjoyed the meals HelloFresh sent me. I received my insulated box of ingredients, which included, if I may add, an adorable HelloFresh apron to wear while I prepare my meals. My favorite meal this week was the balsamic fig chicken, which included chicken breasts covered in delicious fig glaze, roasted sweet potatoes, and fresh salad greens. HelloFresh makes cooking easy because recipes only take around 30 minutes to make, and a lot of them are one-pot recipes for easy cooking and cleanup. HelloFresh allows you to try things you never would have thought of cooking on your own. For example, I would have never imagined to pair a fig balsamic glaze with my chicken, but it was delicious. To experience HelloFresh for yourself, and trust me, you want to experience it, go to HelloFresh.com and use the promo code THINAIR30 to get $30 off your first week of deliveries. Links to this offer can be found on our website and social media. Since so much time has passed with no word or sign of what could have happened to Steve, the family now believes that something bad happened to him and that he is no longer alive. Five years after his disappearance, his mom, Rosetta, had Steve declared legally dead. There were a variety of circumstances in Steve's life which, in hindsight, seemed like they could have led to foul play. The first was a connection to a woman named Janice Lilly, whose husband was in jail and released around the same time Steve went missing. The family's official notes on this case describe Steve and Janice's relationship this way, quote, A girlfriend who Steve had helped to move a few days earlier had a husband in jail who was released that weekend. Janice Lilly had broken off her relationship with Steve a week before, knowing her husband in jail for heroin sales and possession was being released. Steve was apparently upset about saying goodbye, 
but was resigned to the idea, end quote. But Norman and Rosetta remember the relationship differently now. I'm not sure exactly how tight they were, but they were, they were, they enjoyed each other's company. And uh, I met her once. Um, he took her to a concert uh, at the Great American Music Hall. That's about all I know about her. She seemed like a nice gal. Well, I don't know if they if that was his girlfriend, but I think they were friends because her husband was in jail. So I don't think they have, you know, a, a relationship in that way. But I did, I met her once. Yeah, we were, Susie was playing at a club in San Francisco and I was there and Steve was there with her. So I met her briefly and, uh, you know, sat at their table for a little while and that's the only time I met her. So, did Janice's husband kill Steve out of revenge and hide his body? It's worth noting here that we could not find a way to contact Janice Lilly. Well, all I know, I met her and she seemed really nice and she seemed very concerned that Steve was missing and they had dated for a while. So that was another thing we were kind of suspicious of is like, well, did this guy, you know, come and off Steve out of jealousy? I never talked to Janice's boyfriend or spouse, um, but the police did, and they didn't seem to be worried that he had been involved in any foul play. There was another suspicious moment that can really only be described as a rumor, and it's hard to pin down where this rumor came from, but allegedly someone, and we don't know who this person is, told Steve that he had killed his wife. I do suspect about foul play at this point. You know, I held on to that belief that he would turn up for a number of years, but um, yeah, now I, now I do believe that that something happened to him. And I know there was this, there was some story he had told our, our friend, his friend Frank, that he knew a guy, and the guy had told him that he'd murdered his girlfriend. And and Frank shared that, I think, with the police and with us, but they were never able to figure out who that person was. And so, you know, that was always a suspicious thing. I guess it got more suspicious the more and more it sunk in that he wasn't coming back. So I, I just trying to wrap my head around this story. So somebody told Stephen that... We, we don't know who, so some guy told Stephen yeah. that he, this guy, had murdered his wife and that that might have been a possible motive for Stephen's disappearance? Yeah, possibly, right. There was another person that may have had a contentious moment with Steve before his disappearance, and that was a friend named Aaron Lopez. Aaron is described as Steve's best friend in the family's notes, and, allegedly, the two had gotten into a fight before his disappearance. The fight is described this way from the case notes, quote, Aaron was Steve's best friend. 
We heard they had a big argument and that Aaron had a large scar on his arm shortly after Steve disappeared. Aaron quit his job the week following Steve's disappearance, end quote. But again, both Norman and Rosetta don't believe this fight meant anything in connection to Steve's disappearance. And I I had also read that he had gotten into a fight with his friend Aaron Lopez. Can you sort of elaborate on that or, or tell me what you know about that? Not much. That was explored by the police, I believe. They looked into that because that seemed like a you know, possible motive for uh, him disappearing, but they found nothing to indicate that Aaron had anything to do with uh, disappearance. They were really good friends. That was one of his best friends, and... Aaron was just as concerned about his disappearance as the rest of the family. Aaron I talked to like a couple of years later. I just wanted to talk to him. I wanted to know what their relationship was like. And Aaron just like the sweetest kid <laughs> or guy. I don't think I... I met him briefly one time, but... I just couldn't imagine him hurting Steve in any way. Even considering all these strange circumstances, Norman thinks that the police knew about these things and that they would have been looked into. And they knew about all the things about the story that he knew about a guy who had killed his wife and... They knew about Janice Lilly's drug addict husband and uh, pretty much everything that we had known, but they had never been able to, you know, come up with anything that would, uh, that would give us a clue of what happened to Steve. So apparently they did do some investigating because they, they knew about all of this stuff. With so little to go on at the time, Norman began to scan San Francisco news for anything that could have happened to Steve. Shortly after Steve disappeared, Norman saw a news article with the headline, Bound Man Survives Being Thrown Into the Bay, and it made him think, is this possibly what happened to my son? Well, I'm... I feel pretty certain that somebody killed him, Uh, whether it was the guy who had killed his wife who decided that he didn't want somebody around with that knowledge, or I think there was a newspaper article that around that time there was another guy who was waiting for a bus, I believe, and three guys in a van stopped and kidnapped him and robbed him and then tied him up and took him to a a pier on the bay and dumped him in the bay. The news article describes the event in much more detail. Quote, Larry Swimmer was walking to a bus stop on Irving Street near 7th Avenue at around 10 p.m. when a U-Haul truck carrying three armed men pulled up beside him. Before he could act, 
the unknown abductors threw him yelling and kicking into the back of the truck. He said he was driven around about 40 minutes when the driver pulled up to a concrete courtyard near some long steps leading out to a building. They let Swimmer out while one man held him down and another tied his feet and hands. Another gagged him and a third held a gun to his head. The men robbed him, drove around for another hour, and then finally backed the truck up against the bay and forced Swimmer to sit on a wall with his back to the water. As two of the men began walking away, a third kicked Swimmer in the chest and into the bay, end quote. To our knowledge, the three men were never caught, and they only managed to get $50 from Swimmer, along with some credit cards and bank cards. Norman was so moved by this story that he actually contacted Larry just to see if he saw or remembered anything that could give him some clue as to whether or not Steve could have met a similar fate. Actually got in touch with that guy and talked to him, but, you know, there's no way of tying that in to Steve's disappearance, but he didn't have a car, and he also took the bus, so it was just something that I was curious about. So what does that leave the Davis family with? Maybe Steve did just walk away from everything. Maybe he just needed to leave everything and everyone behind and start a new life. Or maybe Steve was met with foul play and no one has ever known about his fate or what happened to him. Even though Rosetta knows this is a possibility too, she has never forgotten Steve. And in her heartache, she blames herself. He'd come over for birthdays or, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving. Sometimes I would see him if, if um, Susie was playing in San Francisco and he'd be there and I would go. I didn't see him all that often. That's, you know, another thing. It's like somehow you just feel kind of guilty, like I didn't do the right thing with him or something. And it's hard to get over. And I think, I think. I always have to remind myself I just did the best I could. Norman and Susie still have hope that someday they will know what happened to Steve. When somebody vanishes into, like, the name of your program, into thin air, I don't know what you go on, you know? There's just, there's nothing there. That's been the the sore point with the family for all these years is there's just there's nothing it's hard to deal with but that's that's how it is it's so strange you know like for i would for decades i would have dreams where i would see him and i'd be like steve you know where have you been and he'd be just like oh you know don't worry about it man <laughs> you know and we'd connect that way because i still you know, believe that he was alive somewhere. And it's just, it's like when, you know, it's sad when somebody dies, like it's very, very, that feeling and that awareness of them is very keen for a long time, but it's 
been quite some while and you know he just the your your awareness of the person just does tend to fade a little bit so we just kind of adjusted to having just you know me and my brother Sean and my brother Scott and and it's just kind of sad you know I'm super sad for my mom every time his birthday comes around and um Twenty-three-year-old Stephen Allen Davis went missing on October 31, 1986. There is very little that is known for certain in his case, but it is believed that he made it to his home in the Richmond district of San Francisco after finishing work that Friday. He may have left on his own, but there are also suspicious circumstances in his life right before he went missing. If you have any information on Steve's case, please contact the San Francisco Police Department. Contact information is on our website. You can also email us directly at thinairpodcast at gmail.com and we will pass your information along for you. If you know or think you know any of the people we named in this podcast, we would love to hear from you. Pictures and other links are also available on our website thinairpodcast.com. Thin Air Podcast is written, produced, and engineered by Jordan Sims and Daniel Calderon, with production assistance from Nate Halda. Music today was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can check them out. Their amazing collection is at sessions.blue. Certain donors through our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash thinairpodcast, get rewards for supporting our independently created show. One of these rewards is to be credited as an executive producer. The executive producers of Thin Air Podcast are Jack and Christy Lupian, Drusilla Dents, Rebecca Hardberger, Ellie Eisenhart, Susan Anderson, Hustle Rawl, Elle McManus, Heather Cadieu, Mistea Pena, Bonnie Mortensen, Elizabeth Farmer, and Anthony Loper. We'll be back in two weeks.